Welcome to the latest offering of Lit Bits. Um, my name is Adam Smythe and I'm joined in the orbiting pod by James Kidd and this evening by James Byrne. And we're going to talk a little bit today about bad literature, which may seem a slightly strange thing to talk about on a wet Thursday night in London. But we're going to think a little bit about what we mean by bad literature and also perhaps think a little bit about the role that bad literature plays in literary culture more broadly. So, James, you could read um, a sample of the form or a possible example of the form. This is the opening of uh, The Truth About Love by by Josephine Hart. And, and the, the opening is actually the three dots, so mm. dot, 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 and, and a lowercase and, just to give you a sense of, of how immediate this is. So dot, dot, dot. And the sky rolled, rolling over me, heavy light. And bright too. Is it bright? Yes. And I lift my face to the light, and I'm flying towards it, but I cannot reach it. And now I'm falling, hurtling fast to the ground, and now the ground is close, closer, rushing hard. Please, not yet, please wait, ground. But the ground is now, and I'm soft, me on so hard ground. And I'm all wet on such a dry day, and the wet is cold. I am cold wet on a hot dry day, and the sky rolls, rolls over me again. No birds, I can hear no birds. And it goes on like this for pages of this stuff. Uh, That's certainly a very remarkable beginning, isn't it? It is, and there's... there's I think what I was interested in was, was something which is, I think that she's obviously, she gets terrific sort of reviews and uh, and is clearly thought of as a great prose stylist. Uh, John Banville calls her an ambitious and poetic weaver of a long ago family tragedy. But I, I just couldn't bear it because I think... Perhaps it... he meant literally a weaver. <laughs> <laughs> so maybe maybe a first question to think about, if we can pick out any elements of that passage upon one hearing that, that seem to be you know, traits of, of badness. I mean, maybe the ellipsis at the beginning is a bad place to start. And, um, I mean, is it badness about that it's straining for something more than it is? I think the pun of heavy light was, was worthy of, of some form of execution on its own. But I think it's that desire for immediacy, which I think poets can do, but without mm. such a, a straining. I don't, I, mean, I don't know what, what the poet here actually <laughs> made of that. Um, well, in, in that excerpt, immediately you have this deep sort of agitation you know she's uh, the agitated tone for me was a bit deeply suspicious <laughs> um, and very much uh, well very little given away really um I, I don't know i suppose what do we think of when bad do we think no imagination do we think bad imagination mm -hmm. for me that had n very little imagination and bad imagination uh, <laughs> so it had it had a bit of both is the rest of the book sustained in that in that no, it, well, parts, of air. because it's set in Ireland, um, I think she's thinking of Joyce almost all the time when she's not thinking of Yeats or Beckett. And you're, you're never very far from an, an allusion to, to Irish literature. Um, but, but there's this extraordinary sort of reiteration of her prose. She says something and then she says it again in case you've missed it. Absolutely in love is indeed absolutely overwhelming. But for this love, which was overwhelming for him, though not for me, an injustice of the heart. I went to see a psychiatrist, and I sort of pretty much knew how she felt at that point. But, <laughs> so maybe, but that, maybe that's a good place to start. One category of bad literature, then, is, is writing that strives to be like another writer, or a canonical writer, or a celebrated writer like Joyce in this case, but then falls with a kind of incredible bathos, massively short. And there must be particular, particular writers who kind of induce this in followers. I mean, Joyce is a 
is one example, I suppose. Who else might there be? Um, I suppose deceptively simple people like Raymond Carver. I'm sure at some point in the 90s, every male in their 20s seemed to be writing stories about being a drunk in Arkansas or Washington State, even if they were living in you know, Faversham or something. Charles Bukowski, I think. Um, the books look very good in, in, in the pocket secondhand jackets um, when you're listening to Nick Cave on your... On your um, but, but I wonder how many people actually read it, but, but, but because I think what was... People bought into a certain lifestyle of, of a writer and what being a writer meant, which was falling off a bar and, and landing on a prostitute um but whether the writing was actually any good i think i think Bukowski actually dates terribly because you can write in a tradition well i mean to go back to carver i mean obviously there's people like richard ford and others who don't come to mind are there poets perhaps that that we could think of anyone from the beat generation i imagine <laughs> Um, people writing poetry right now in, in New York or in London, in these unfortunate cases when people strive to be like someone and don't quite make it, who are they, who are they striving for, do you think? Um, well, John Ashbery is the great-grandfather of mm. um, New York poetry, I suppose. Mm. Now, what, coming through in his 80s and, <laughs> you know, wrote great poetry in the 70s for me. Mm. Um, now you really have to... But he he's a different case because he's he has an ex there's an exceptional intellect behind the poems, even though he's getting on he's you know not what he was he's not the Ashbury of the seventies he's still very you know has a vast intellect and vast amount of experience to draw from and I think experience is so essential if somebody has nothing to say then it's going to be very bad unless you have an exceptional imagination like Rambo, who could just imagine what it would be like to be on this drunken boat or whatever. Yeah, yeah. I like, it's interesting, that idea of age, isn't it? And that kind of Ashbury, the 80-year-old Ashbury not being the figure he was. I wonder if that applies more generally to writers, whether we can think about them having a kind of career and like kind of hurdlers or chess players, you know, peaking in there whenever it is and falling away. I mean, is that generally the pattern that writers get better and then at a certain peak and then then fall away I wonder, again with poets that there's there's a tra trajectory that the story is that as a young man a firebrand radical um goes to the french revolution writes the prelude and tins now being the lyrical ballads and is terribly radical and and therefore good and as an old man rewrites the prelude and has converted to christianity to some extent and rewrites his work generally for the better but i think that's always the case and i wonder how much that's got to do with an academic reading which tends to be more sympathetic to, to the young Wordsworth than the old one. And I think with the romantics anyway, there's that sense of the next generation who will die young before they became terribly awful. And so I think some of these poets, um, I suppose, I guess Rambo and Verlaine, who, uh, whose career was relatively short, I think mm. he said reaching. But again, it's that, yes, that notion that, you know, that, you know, somehow Bob Dylan should have died when he was, um, when he fell off the bike and yeah. saved us all the ghastly. Uh, 1980s stuff. Yeah, so I think because all that recent interest in, in career, late style, Edward Said's book on late style and, and this idea that at the end of your career there's a kind of turning tendency to engage with kind of complexity and difficulty and in a way that maybe you didn't early on in your career. And it's, it's a big example. Well, it's, it's, it's a difficult book, isn't it? Because lots of examples come from music and Beethoven. I don't quite know how to talk about music in that way. But he also talks about Shakespeare, doesn't he, in the, in the final plays. And that, I think that's true. Shakespeare in his later writing cuts out more and more and more, offers less and less explanation. There are more gaps and holes and strange weirdnesses going on. Um, so he seems to have an idea of people getting more interesting, I guess, or at least tackling 
head-on, more difficult things. I'm glad you mentioned, James, that uh, because I can't say it very often in Greenwich Village about Bob Dylan, <laughs> but of course he is revered uh, as the you know one of the key American poets. What can pass as um, you know high imagination in or successful at least in music would make very sloppy, slapdash, horrible, cringeworthy poetry. Bob Dylan, for me, you know, certainly has written some terrible poems. But... I do have a slight problem with Dylan. I think it's Christopher Ricks wrote the Visions of Sin book, and I made, I think, made an interesting case. But I think sometimes you did. I did just worry that the words on the page, without the music, didn't always. Yeah. Um... It's close reading of repeat till repeat till fade. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Pop music is a is an interesting one, isn't it? Because thinking about pop music i mean pop music and cliches i mean pop most pop lyrics are very bad that's true and they don't stand up if you transcribed your avril lavigne or whatever it is they can't they can't be visionary perhaps you know, they, yeah. they, they can't be ahead of their time i think good literature often is ahead of its time why do you think that that is is it because pop music in some ways has always got to communicate directly and i always think the greatest pop lyric was she loves you yeah 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 it just doesn't sort of get much better and in some ways that's just awful if you read it or if you read it just on a wall somewhere but when you hear it it's extraordinary so pop music has to use the it's the kind of resources around it and maybe in a way poetry might not but i think pop music does something i mean it takes cliches doesn't it often like i love you sort of breathes new life into them i think partly by repeating them over and over again and making them strange i think so that's what happens with that song i think she loves you yeah. just, so many times that the words become odd I'm, I'm going to be unashamedly elitist about this and say, because I am elitist um, and I have no shame. But I think there are certain things, well, there is obviously a dialogue happening where, when people really buy into the pop lyric, the classic pop lyric mm. as being successful poetry. Mm. So I don't know. I'll give you an example. I, I run this poetry magazine, The Wolf, and we get about a thousand submissions every issue and we read everything. And I picked up a couple of little tidbits this morning. <laughs> uh, I can't mention who wrote them, but um, the rain of guilt is pouring down on me. Uh, this was a, a young poet who sent this submission in yesterday. I think um, that was the Eurovision entry for England. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's almost passable by today's sort of... Um, Can you say it again? Can you read it again? The rain is so good, isn't it? You need to hear yeah, it twice. Yeah, yeah. It's just the levels. The rain of guilt is pouring down on me. Right. Um, you know, it, you could almost imagine one of these uh, sort of Simon Cowell manufactured bands getting away with that and somebody ooing yeah. and ahhing over that yeah, yeah. Uh, as a pop lyric. I'll give you another one. Every day I drink from a bottle called Sorrow. Um, now, that probably is so bad that it couldn't even get in a song today. But, you know, this is the kind of stuff people are sort of, there's, for me, uh, quite a dumbing down going on where people can sort of say, well, this is poetry. You know, it comes from the heart. Mm. Um, which is dangerous, you know. A friend of mine was uh, involved with a uh, poetry magazine and, like you, had lots of unfortunate submissions and he said about 60% of them involved young men writing poems about their girlfriend's tiny hands. <laughs> so there is a, there's, a dangerous, there's a dangerous idea that, which is very much an idea of our time, isn't it, that everyone's voice is equal to everyone else's and everyone is entitled to their poem being published and everyone's entitled to their pop song being performed. Um, but that's just that's just not the case. There's um, also that notion of it sounds like from what you're saying this instinctive outpouring of emotion. And one of the more extraordinary poetic moments I thought of the recent years was 
was after Princess Diana died. Mm. Uh, I remember going down to the um, wherever the enormous amounts of flowers were, and everywhere you look were poems written mm. by people. I thought that there were probably more poems written about this one event than probably about you know the First World War. If you could call them poems, that people were seeking rhyme and rhythm as a way to express, and that people struggled obviously to, to rhyme Diana very easily, um, <laughs> but it was poetry as sort of regurgitation in some way. Which... But it, but it, but it is interesting, isn't it, how people reach for poetry at these moments when you're at a wedding or a funeral or Christmas or or a national tragedy as it were, like that, people do feel a need to turn to that. There has to be a place for it, not just in poetry, but in literature, that, you know, it is a kind of light switch in the dark in a way, even though I I totally disagree with, you know, that should be what, that's the nature of poetry, that's what it's for, that, what's what it can be used for. Can it be taught and improve, I mean, seeing as you've been te- I'm about to teach? Well, I was writing all kinds of shit when I was in my <laughs> sort of late teens, you know, the, the kind of stuff, I, so I'd like to think I've improved. And What would you say has happened to your writing to make it better from that, that teenage outpouring? What's, how would you, what are the differences from what you produce now? Well, I came from it being pretty much self-taught. So let's say I were an architect and wanted to build a house, then I would try and learn something about architecture. You know, I would then sort of become fascinated by my subject uh, and, try, you know, I'm probably going to build a better house if I study more about architecture or if I take an interest mm-hmm. in how to build the foundations mm-hmm. or whatever. So. If you're going to read um, more contemporary poetry in, in order to better your, your own writing mm-hmm. practice, horrible phrase, writing practice, but mm-hmm. I think that that's kind of essential. That's mm-hmm. what I did. I found out, you know, and I learned a lot from reading bad literature as well. <laughs> and I think that's important. You know, it is useful, bad literature, because it helps you. Can you name some of the people that, that, that you were reading that helped you, that steered you on your, your path? Well, when I was growing up, Larkin uh, probably is, uh, was, and is still the the English poet. So I was reading the Larkins, Betjamins coming out of school, you know, thinking, well, this is something to kick against, isn't it? Surely, <laughs> you know, just the sort of the miserabilism of subject. You know, I, for me, I, I'm not that interested in poetry being necessarily miserable. I mean, I think it should have some kind of effect. But in anything that I'm interested in, in terms of literature, it has to either extend the tradition or somehow conform to the tradition. You mean by extend the tradition, you mean doing something that hasn't been done before, advancing things? Or... Yeah, somehow sort of conforming to the literary tradition, mm-hmm. um, but also advancing it. Are we living in a particular time of bad literature now, do you think? It does seem to be. The conventionally critically celebrated novelists do seem to be a very coherent and small group, which haven't been many new editions if we think about you know in terms of fiction martin amos and ian McEwen and all that kind of gang and there does seem to be a kind of dispiriting competence about their writing that's what people say about McEwen, isn't it but it's it's he's so professional and does it so well he knows exactly what he's doing and all the books follow the same art it's a happy family and you reach halfway through and suddenly the middle class ideal crumbles and it just kind of goes on and on and on and so i guess it feels a little bit like we're that's reached a point of um flatness but at the same time as you were saying it gives you you know larkin gave you something to push against it seems to me that that's perhaps going to be quite a quite helpful catalyst or prompt for younger writers to get very bored with and angry about and produce something different i think we're definitely living in a time of um uh, of bad literature um and i think that means that we're living that we have bad taste and bad taste can be 
can mean success. But, but are there examples of, of very, very successful but still very, very interesting writers, poets or novelists? I guess uh, Pynchon, Thomas Pynchon's, you know, was trying to do, or is, wherever he is, is trying to do interesting things in the novel. Um, you know, he needs an editor to cut out 500 pages, but he's still trying to do interesting things and he has big sales and big advances and partly that's the mystique of his life, obviously. But he's definitely doing something very different from what seems to be the English novel tradition at the moment. The one that, that funny enough, and he works in a much more commercial area, is James Elroy. Mm. Um, and, and, and he wrote a novel, I think, called The Long 6000, which was actually unreadable. Um, and he he developed this extraordinary sort of, uh, I think everyone, you have to, you're legally bound to say that, that it was sort of machine gun sort of prose. Right. But by this point, he literally, it really was machine gun prose. And, and I don't think anyone's mind can actually absorbed the sentences and, and it, because it was 800 pages long and you mean just what very staccato incredibly st- staccato sentences and you after a while you've got a headache and mm-hmm. but but in the way that that he's actually one of the few writers I, I think has made quite a bold and interesting attempt to with with an act to, to produce a pro style in i guess the way foster wallace has well he's interesting is because he's writing within a genre that's looked down upon um, you know, crime, murder novel, but he's also trying to do something um, slightly odd and different. I just wonder, in terms of, are we living in a particularly bad time? Is that just not always the case? That if you look at, that in terms of looking back at literary history, that we tend to weed out all the absolute rubbish? I'm sure we do. I'm sure we do. Um, but it, it does seem to be the case, to come back to the Simon Cowell refrain, <laughs> it does. there does seem to be this, you know, this sense of a democratization of talent or entitlement to sending in your poems or writing your novels. Do we think that a person who in 10 years' time is going to write the Ulysses of our, of our times, I mean, are they going to break through? Are they going to be read? Are they going to be published? We're living in a commercial publishing world, maybe, but is it, is it also a world that recognizes and is interested in people who are doing genuinely different things? Well, yeah, I'd like to think so. I mean, um, I think. Uh, excellence is still something it's, it's a kind of universal concept still I, I think you know Ulysses being uh, as brilliant as it was should, uh, the new Ulysses wouldn't be missed you know mm-hmm. we've all read the first one we're waiting <laughs> for another one we're going through the Dan Browns just to get one mm-hmm. so um, yeah I think I think you have to believe that that um, because the the net is so big that um you know, there's always chance for something new. I think perhaps just going back to poetry, I think it is easier in a way to uh, to find that because um, in, in America last year, there were 2,000 books of poetry published. I mean, that's a lot. And although it's much smaller here, uh, you can really sort of sift through them. You can't read them all, of course, 2,000. But if you think about how many novels were published in America last year, I mean, that must be going into, well, at least the tens of thousands. And, you know, it makes it harder to find them. It's sort of like looking for a diamond in a pool of vomit sometimes, I suppose. <laughs> yeah. um, I, I, although there might be f- several diamonds in there, but <laughs> yeah. there's a lot of vomit. And, uh, you know, surely we're all, these books, because of the media drive behind them, um, will get seen. What What is worrying is that the man- manuscript that's languishing in and not being read uh, could be the, the classic book, yeah. book that we're missing out on. I was going to say at the same time, I think technology, the internet, um, could uh, will will provide f- um, forums uh, for a 
for I, for for writers who who work outside of those traditions in the way that probably obscure literary journals have done. That's true, um, but, but whether but you can find them, I mean, Diamond it, and Vomit, it doesn't do justice to finding something good published on the internet, does it? James, I, I just wanted to ask you something about uh, poetry and, and performance and the moments when I've been to readings of poetry recently. Um, there seems to be an overwhelming emphasis on humour and, and, and getting a laugh. And um, there seems to be this conflation of poetry reading with, with a kind of stand-up comedy um, in lots of, um, lots of lots of occasions I've seen. And that seems to me slightly slightly worrying, um, or it seems to be poetry's turning into something slightly different. I mean, I do think we're in a very, uh, at a low point in the history of stand-up comedy, and maybe maybe it's sort of migrating. Maybe poetry's migrating in to fill that hole. The next stand-up comic will be a poet. When I came to London when I was seventeen, there was still there was quite a lot of emphasis on poetry and cabaret and mm-hmm. and entertainment. And mm-hmm. you know, if you're going to get up there and read a poem, then you better not just sort of stand there. And you know, and it was at that point in the the eighties had gone. You didn't see poem, poems read on BBC Two with someone having a log fire behind them reading. Um, Dryden or Pope or whatever. Um, actually, that would have been quite good. But <laughs> <laughs> That's an idea for Channel 5. I see most of the good writers now moving into television. The, the, the best writing I've witnessed in terms of pr- prose writing are on these Ameri- extraordinary American mm. shows like The Wire. And I wonder mm. if people that may have written a novel mm. 50 years ago, uh, and, and certainly 100 years ago, but are now going to do um, screenwriting courses. I think that's right. If, certainly if you wander around a library, if you want to... Uh, you know, 15 years ago, people were hacking away their versions of Middlemarch, weren't they? But if you walk around the London Library now, say, they're all doing um, scripts. So I wonder if we can say something uh, about cliche, which which most people would think instinctively as a, to be a quality of bad writing and, and good writing is anti-cliche. I mean, even to quote Martin Amos's book title of his essays, The War Against, whatever it is, The War on Cliche, The War on Terror, The War on something or other. But there are also many instances, aren't there, of, of, of poets in particular, I suppose. We talked about Ashbury early earlier we talked about Ashbury um using cliches in in very interesting ways and a poem like Eliot's Wasteland is full of moments where there are these surprisingly colloquial what did you get married for if you didn't want to have children or whatever that line Vivian Eliot is meant to have written we might think instinctively that cliche is the the perhaps the defining quality of bad writing but but something interesting seems to happen to cliches in certain kinds of poetry and certain kinds of writing. Yeah, I don't know. Cliché is uh, is something to be wary of, but also perhaps to try and reinvent the context of a cliché and the way that in the, in writing, perhaps in poetry, you can use a verb as a noun as a verb or vice versa. Really try and um, remodel, reaffect uh, the the cliche into something new. If one definition of poetry is is, is language made strange or you know laid, made unfamiliar, then I think cliches are a good test of that. It's quite. I think it's a great thing about about reading things uh, at different times of your life, and uh, that you can invest lines which may not have been a cliche at the time. But like you know, I, I think of the opening of Endymion, a thing of beauty is a joy forever, which mm. you see in every advert now. You know this. Or this goal was a thing of beauty. And actually, it's an extraordinarily strange line, you know, mm. a thing of beauty. I almost sort of think, mm. did he go a thing of beauty? I will fill that in mm. a little bit. But a thing is such a sort of strange word, you know, at the time you start to sense it was because and you get shot. And That's right. A few things seem less beautiful than a thing. 
And could we say that that's good because it has some kind of mystery or magic about it? I mean, I, I'm just using these as terms, almost cliche terms, but... James, you're thumbing a, thumbing a volume. Well, I, I say about Keats because I think... I mean, Rick's has written a lot. Uh, he's extraordinarily bad when he wants to be. And But so you have a poem like Sleep and Poetry, which is which is kind of about imagining yourself being a slightly better poet than you are currently, and then by the end of it, your imagination has actually made you a better, slightly better poet. But it... Mm-hmm. It does start like this. Um, What is more gentle than a wind in summer? What is more soothing than the pretty hummer that stays one moment in an open flower and buzzes cheerily from bower to bower? Mm. And it really is fairly fairly terrible stuff. Well, Um, Keats, I mean, we talked about bad writers who induce... uh, Good writers who induce bad writing, Larkin or Carver or, I don't know, maybe Sabord is another example. But um, good writers who are precariously close to being bad writers... That's another interesting category, and I think Keats must be the supreme example. Of I think that. if you write about the sort of feeling of being clammy-handed and um, interested in putting your nose into a, a, a flower and getting covered in pollen and the sort of strange, oozy sensations, and, and this is why Byron got so terribly upset about. Him. I think Keats is vulgar and bad because he's writing about those <clears throat> things. He's 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 not classically educated, and um, I don't think he's particularly aggressively. Um, opposed to the 18th century and he, he he quite likes bits of hope but um he wants to write about different sorts of things and feels constrained and and well, at the point of his death what is his critical standing I and mean, he gets lots of bad reviews uh, fairly sort of un, still fairly unknown and completely dominated by by the bad reviews it's sad and uplifting isn't it you, these poets in their lifetime who didn't have much or any success and or any recognition but then literary history does seem to eke them out I mean, Hopkins, Gerald Manny Hopkins, I suppose, is the supreme. I mean, only Robert Bridges and one other, and his cat seem to know that he was a poet at all. And Blake, and funny enough, the pre-Raphaelites are Blake, Keats, Shelley to some extent. And I think there's it's extraordinary the way that slightly bonkers movements can can pick uh, can pick up, pick people up a bit a bit later. Um, and that's their responsibility as well, you know, to delve back and to time travel, to go yeah. back and forwards and yeah. find what. You know, um, they like. I've I've was listening to the Keats, and I wrote down a couple of lines um, from a guy called John Close because he also was talking about poets and poetry, and I think that's where Keats's poem falls away for me, where he's not just having this um, uh, abundance of, you know, as a naturalist, he, and then he has to refer it back to poetry in some way, and I, I sort of winced at that moment. <laughs> but there was a guy called John Close who was around um, at the end of the nineteenth century, and. He also wrote about poetry. This, is for me, is just as bad as it gets. Around the gods, each seated on a throne, the poets crowned like kings they sat. Around their heads a dazzling halo shone, no needs of mortal robes, nor any hat. And that actually that was actually published by um, Wyndham Lewis. And, really? Um, they, they had an anthology of bad verse oh, in 1930. And Tennyson gets in, Wordsworth gets in, um, called The Stuffed Owl. But there are there are bad lines within great plays or great poems as well. There's the Titus Andronicus, my favourite bad Shakespeare line actually is, I wrote it down here. I'll see what hole is here, and what he is that new is leapt into it. I mean that that there are too many words there. But I think badness can also be incredibly memorable, and and it's sad that the best bit of Wordsworth or the the most memorable bit of Wordsworth, other than I've wandered lonely as a cloud, um, is from the Thorn in the Lyrical Ballads, which is a very famous uh, final. A couplet. Um, it's the third stanza, 
High on a mountain's highest ridge, where oft the stormy winter gale cuts like a scythe, while through the clouds it sweeps from vale to vale, not five yards from the mountain path, this thorn you on your left espy, and to the left three yards beyond, you see a little muddy pond of water never dry. I've measured it from side to side, just three feet long and two feet wide. <laughs> and yeah. apparently Wordsworth has said that you know, it ought to be liked. It's interesting, though. There are, uh, generally, the response to bad literature is to laugh, isn't it? I mean, I mean, you might have thought it would be, maybe if you read thousands of them every day, if you're editing a journal, the, the, the response is despair. But there is something... Uh, yeah, you'll be as bitter as I am. <laughs> something, I mean, reading, a, a, there's something particularly pleasing about a, a great canonical writer doing something bad, I think. Sort of a sense of hope for everyone, you know. But but it's interesting that our response is to laugh at it and to find it funny and um I think when you think about it actually it's rather it's a rather extraordinary moment in the in in, in that that it sort of literally brings it down to earth. And mm. um I think it's I sort of rather prefer that than than the attempt at at, at the sublime, is what James mm. was saying earlier, which I think Josephine Hart is very interesting. Mm. which I do you like poetry, which is literally measuring a pond? I suppose. <laughs> I think we have. I suppose now we have. So, there, there are so many yardsticks, which, are, which in the culture, for example, uh, the never-ending literary prize or uh, um, coronations like the the poet laureate or the the Nobel Prize, all, all these sorts of things, which, which I think declare um, what the best book of the year or the you know the best film of the year and. Mm. Um, how, how often does the is the Booker Prize won by the best novel? How often is the poet laureate has has the poet laureate ever been a um, even a half decent poet? But we are uneasy, aren't we, about the role of the office of the poet laureate? It does seem to a lot of people to be just inappropriate that a poet should be you know dashing off verses about Princess Margaret's hundred yeah. and fourth birthday. You could talk about um, Elizabeth Alexander. She wrote the inauguration poem for mm-hmm. uh, Barack Obama. And, uh, you know, perhaps it's not for me to say it, but it's a dreadful poem. We don't really have a have a well-established tradition of public political poetry anymore, do we? But if we're in the 18th or 17th or 16th centuries, we'll be more at ease with that idea of writing what might be a fantastic poem on, on a coronation and not, not having any problem with that. I'm sort of interested by politics. I mean, that's one of the, the other notions of, of, of badness. And, and, and one thinks of Larkin um, immediately that can a fairly appalling human being produce great, great work? Um, yeah. Or are they damned? Or by... well, to make it even more, or to make him even more kind of crass, is, is there a kind of right-left correlation to good literature? Is, is most good literature left-leaning? I mean, most English departments would hope that it is. <laughs> It's certainly the case that lots of right-wing, lots of conservative novelists' stock is low, I think. You think of, like, War or Anthony Pohl, people like this. But I do think there is, there is an assumption that there's something about making a work of literature, perhaps because it's about remaking, because it's about taking things and reordering it and producing something new that is inherently restless in relation to what's going on now and they're therefore inherently kind of leftist rather than simply shoring up what's around us now or has uh, this is a difficult way to put it but um has a kind of both both sort of postmodern idea that that we we we're interested in what's interesting but not necessarily what's good so 
we study EastEnders and and Shakespeare. But you would study you would study EastEnders for different reasons than you would study Shakespeare, wouldn't you? You study EastEnders as a as a marker of a moment in history and. Uh, in terms of popular culture, in terms of the history of TV. But what? does it have a knock-on effect in terms of what, when we discuss dumbing down that we're now as interested in... Uh, and the classic formulation is Keats and Bob Dylan, um, that Dylan is every bit as great an artist as Keats. And, mm. um, and certainly if you're talking about going to see one or either, or either of them play uh, the O2, I think I would probably choose Dylan. I just don't think literary criticism in its current manifestation has a very sophisticated vocabulary for offering aesthetic assessments of a poem it doesn't know how to talk about whether this is good or bad except through the language of this is my opinion and this is what i think as soon as you use that language then susan Boyle's just as good there was one final thing i wanted to well it didn't have to be the final thing but one thing i wanted to ask and that is whether 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 reading bad writing, bad literature is a bad thing, whether it does us harm if we live exclusively on a diet of Rocky II and Josephine Hart and, and selected lines of Wordsworth. Yes, I think, I think so. I'm actually going through a slight sort of detox at the moment because I've read too much bad sort of contemporary crime writing, and, um, which I, and I love crime writing. There's some really good crime writers. It's sort of golden age of crime writers in some mm. ways. But um, if I read one more book with a middle-aged English policeman who likes the Who and has got a drink problem and is going out with an implausibly good-looking younger woman um, who may or may not be a lesbian, uh, I think I will quietly. That's tremendous. But, but, but what is, what's, the, what's the harm that's been done to you through, in, through that reading? Do you just have a diminished sense of language? or Any difficulty is, is being ironed out. I mean, my theory of, about the success of certain kinds of books is, is changes in reading habits. And that we, and I don't do this, that we don't read at home, we don't read carefully, um, we don't read with, with slowly. Um, we tend to read these days, for the majority of the time, on public transport or aeroplanes mm-hmm. or on um, the e-readers. And I think these things are all wonderful, but it means that certain kinds of book are rather hard to read. It's quite hard to read Proust. But you would have thought think... poetry would be a mobile form. And I mean, they, on poetry, poems I think on the it underground. should be. Well, you see, I mean, you see somebody reading poetry on the underground, you think they're about to commit some indecent act, or, you know, you sort Often of switch are. to the other seat. If it's Andrew Motion, they probably uh, <laughs> just already have and will again <laughs> on that single journey. But it, I don't know, again, it's cultural. In New York, you, you might see some, some beat poet reading on the subway, and it's perfectly normal. Um, I don't know. Going back to your original question, I think there that there is a lot of junk literature and some of it is the equivalent to having a KFC bargain bucket mm-hmm. and it m- might, pro- you know, not prolong your life. Peter Carey recently said this at, a, 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 I think, an Australian uh, literary festival and just lambasted everyone from being idiots and, and not reading. And I'm starting to become more sympathetic, I think, mm-hmm. to that, that we need to be challenged more. It's di- we're living in difficult times and... Mm-hmm. And Elliot said that, you know, we need at difficult times, literature should be difficult. That's why I celebrate this sort of these recent extraordinary American TV shows like The Wire and The Sopranos and Mad Men, because mm-hmm. they make you feel very uncomfortable and they entertain you. And you think, God, that was a great hour and a half. And then quietly sort of find yourself thinking about um, all sorts of rather dark issues. And it's interesting that the, the, the critical benchmark for evaluations of those things like The Wire is always the novel, isn't it? It's, it's like Dickens or it's like, like Tolstoy. So perhaps as a final note, James Kidd, you could read a little bit from your favourite. I mean, you were going to bring in your Pam Ayres collection, but 
that was too heavy to get in. So we got Rocky too, I think. Yeah, so. uh, and this is Apollo Creed, uh, um, reading, I think, a self-composed poem to, to, to Rocky. And it goes, you may not be the brightest, but the time is surely the rightest. So Lord, let him see the glorious light and give him enough guts to fight. Good stuff. So we're all off to uh, KFC to read some Geoffrey Archer. Um, thanks very much for listening. And I'd like to thank James Kidd, as ever, and also James Byrne for talking about bad literature. And there'll be another Lit Bit podcast arriving plump and warm in your inbox very, very soon. <laughs>